Matthew chapter 12. If you turn there, I'd appreciate it. 476. And let's pray as we enter into God's Word together. Lord, many of us are working way too much for all the wrong reasons. And we need rest. And many of us are not at work doing the things that you've called us to do. And we need help. And we all come before you this morning wanting to know you better and to hear from you. And so I ask that you will pour out your spirit upon us and teach us from your word that we would be healed and restored and come under your easy yoke and enjoy your light burden. For this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We all have stories, I would imagine, of getting swindled or taken advantage of in one way or another, getting fooled at one time or another. When I was in college, um, I needed some work being, to be done on my transmission, and there was this guy who said that he could do it for me at half the going rate, and I was too dumb to know that that was probably a stupid decision to go ahead with it, so I took him up on it. Shouldn't have trusted him, but I did. And after I paid him for the work, he handed me a few bolts. He said, well, I said, what are these? He said, hmm. You probably won't need those anyways. As it turns out, I didn't need them, but my car did. Boy, did my car need those. In fact, um, ended up costing me twice as much as if I had just gone to a mechanic that knew what he was doing. At the end of today's Gospel lesson in Matthew chapter 12, we find this prophecy from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, one that Matthew says points to Jesus. And I'm going to try to connect it to that mechanic story, so bear with me. This is the promise of a competent mechanic, basically, what Isaiah is promising. Um, past efforts to repair God's world have failed miserably. The nation of Israel, in particular, had failed in their vocation as God's chosen servant. In the Exodus story, God delivered Israel from the heavy yoke of slavery under Pharaoh to himself for the life of the world. He sent Israel to a land of milk and honey, a land of abundant prosperity, to an easy yoke that they would find there. Listen to this from God's commission to Moses when he sent them to the promised land, Exodus chapter 33, verse 14. And God said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. It sounds like Jesus, that's where he got it from. My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. 
Israel was given work to do, but it was an easy yoke. Israel's job was to enjoy God, and in so doing, to become a light to the nations, to become a way of demonstrating God's love and God's easy yoke for everyone to see. But Israel didn't want God's easy yoke. They wanted no yoke. <laughs> and so they honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from Him. They preferred the ephemeral pleasures of this world over a vibrant relationship with Him. And so by the time Isaiah is writing his prophecy, it's evident that Israel had left the promised land much worse than they found it, and were kind of handing God a handful of bolts. Don't know where these go. You probably don't need them anyways. That's why God gave Isaiah this vision of another servant who would come, who would be a competent mechanic to repair and clean up Israel's mess and get the job done once and for all. Through him, Isaiah is promising at the end of this passage, all nations, all tribes, all tongues, every person everywhere will find rest in the Lord. This is a message for us. God knows how hard you've been working. God knows the pressure you've been under. He knows the burdens you've been carrying. There's so much to be done. And even though you're strong and talented, there's no way you can do it on your own. On the first Christmas, God entered into our world. God, incarnate, became a part of our world to put things right. Jesus the Messiah was born to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, another servant who this time would get the job done right, completely, once and for all. Jesus, Savior, King, it is not His will for you to keep working yourself to death, to be crushed under the weight of these heavy burdens. He is calling you, He's calling me to Himself to find rest and to come under His easy yoke. That's what this message is about. God incarnate brings mercy and rest. And I want to just walk through this passage with you in Matthew chapter 12 and show you that Jesus is first the Lord of rest and ask you, won't you listen to him? And then show you that Jesus is the rest giver and ask, why are you working yourself to death? And then show you that Jesus is this servant, this promised servant, who brings rest to the nations and invite you to join him in his easy, sometimes very difficult work. So let's look at this, first of all, starting the beginning of Matthew chapter 12. Jesus is the Lord of rest. Won't you listen to him? And let me set the context for Matthew chapter 12. At the tail end of the last chapter, another one of Jesus' long speeches in Matthew's Gospel, and Jesus ends that speech with very famous lines, lines that we've already heard in today's service. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? Every election cycle, we hear those on the campaign trail, the opponents, uh, talking about the incumbents, about how they promised and never delivered. But it's going to be different this time, right? It's, it's hard not to be cynical, knowing that this will happen every two years for the rest of our lives, fairly. <laughs> but what if Jesus really is making promises that he can keep? What if he really can deliver on this easy yoke and the promise of rest? What we're going to see in chapter 12, at the end of chapter 11, that's where the action begins. And let's watch and see what happens. And as we do, just keep in mind this backstory of Exodus, which really informs everything that Jesus says about rest. The Exodus was more than deliverance. People think that it was just about being delivered from slavery. It was being delivered from slavery to a relationship with God for a purpose, for a big purpose, for the life of the world. They were being sent to a land of milk and honey, a land of, of uh, great abundance where God promised them rest, not inactivity, not idleness, not suspended animation. They were sent there in order to be this kingdom of priests, this holy nation, so that the light would be on and all would be able to see the glory of the Lord. All nations would be able to come to enjoy that same rest. But again, Israel turned away from God. They, they became enslaved to all the same idols that we have today, you know, fame and fortune, power and pleasure, and so on. And eventually they were gobbled up by one empire after another, from Assyria and Babylon, Persia, Greece, to Rome. Now we find them under the heavy yoke of Rome. That's the backstory, and that's when Jesus appears saying, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He is not just offering liberation. That's a part of it. He's, he is saying, I will free you from slavery. I will free you from bondage. But there's so much more that he's offering. He's offering release, deliverance from slavery to a relationship with himself for the life of the world. That's what he's offering. So again, watch and see what happens. Chapter 12, verse 1 begins at that time, and what we find, right after Jesus bids us come to him and rest in him, we find him not on the sofa, but we find him on the move. He also is not inviting people into this suspended animation. He's saying, let's go. He and his disciples are moving through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And that's the first thing to notice about his rest. It's not an invitation to be still, but to join a journey, to get on the move with Jesus. Come along, he says, let's go together. And as it turns out, this rest that he gives happens with him, oftentimes doing what he is doing. And what is Jesus doing here? He is doing the same thing he's been doing for the last three chapters. Back in chapter 9, he said, 
he would be going through all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. In other words, God incarnate was busy. He was busy doing the work of his father, delivering people from slavery to himself for the life of the world. As strange as this may sound, Jesus keeps busy giving people rest. That's what we see him doing chapter after chapter. And now if Jesus is a fraud, what we're going to find here in chapter 12 is that uh, it's, it's all going to fall apart very soon. And the disciples are going to have to have a credit card and a cell phone to be able to find a hotel and get a ride back to wherever they're from and be able to afford a meal because the whole thing is going to be a sham. But as it turns out, watch what happens. Jesus is not a fraud. He is God incarnate. And he gives people rest even when they're on the move with him. Those who are on the move with him it's kind of like one of those all-inclusive trips, right? I mean, he has everything covered. You don't even have to pack a lunch. Look at this. Verse 1, passing through a grain field, on their mission to give people rest, Jesus and his disciples do what the law of Moses allows, gleaning around the edges of the field, just like Ruth had done long before. We talked about that on the retreat. But, verse 2, the Pharisees were hard taskmasters. They were afflicting the people with heavy burdens, just like in Exodus. They sat idle, watching and waiting to see if they might catch anyone resting. And when they see Jesus and his disciples, they cry foul. It's the Sabbath, they say. Doesn't matter where you're going or what you're trying to do, you should have packed a lunch the night before. Sometimes it's hard for us to understand the significance of, of the Jewish Sabbath. I think it helps to think about it in terms of a national holiday. I think that's kind of what, what we would understand it to be. Every year on the 4th of July, our country has this party to demonstrate before the world that we are free from British tyranny, right? And in the same way, Sabbath-keeping was supposed to be Israel's way of commemorating their deliverance from Egypt. No longer in bondage seven days a week, now every seventh day they have the day off. A way of showing God's easy yoke. That's what it was supposed to be. But just as King George is no longer really on our minds, for the most part, for most people, on Independence Day, think about it. First century Israelites, I mean, Pharaoh was a very distant memory, much further back than King George's for us. Now they were slaves to Herod and Caesar and the Pharisees, as it turns out. And the Pharisees were such hard taskmasters that the Sabbath wasn't restful anymore. It was just another reason why people felt so heavy laden. And listen to what Jesus says to these taskmasters in verse 3. He says, don't you know your Bibles? This is the passage that we've, we've heard read from 1 Samuel 21. It says, don't you know that story when David was on the move and he was uh, freeing God's people from the Philistines and Saul was insanely jealous because of 
David doing these righteous deeds? David brought his men on the Sabbath to the house of God, and the priest fed them consecrated bread, bread, communion bread that was reserved just for the priests. And what's the moral of that story? Jesus is saying that the Sabbath isn't an end to itself, but is meant to serve the, the higher good of God's kingdom. The Sabbath isn't an end to itself, but it's meant to serve the higher good of God's kingdom. In this case, sustaining and uh, sustaining the anointed king, King David, and his servants, who are busy giving people rest. That's what the Sabbath was used for. It was to sustain and so support God's servants who were busy giving people rest. Again, the same sort of argument, verse 5. Listen to what Jesus has to say. This is the age-old question of all children whose parents have to work on Sunday, whether they're working at the hospital or on the fire truck or in the church. Is this wrong, Mom? Is this wrong, Dad? <laughs> Jesus is raising the same question in verse 5. Um, are they breaking the Sabbath as well? No, Jesus says. Because again, the Sabbath is not an end to itself. It serves the higher good of God's kingdom, bearing witness to the Lord. The Lord who keeps delivering people from bondage to life. Who keeps healing people and bringing them back to life and so on. This is what the Sabbath is for. It's supposed to show God. It's supposed to put him on display. God who delivers people from bondage to himself for the life of the world. So if you choose to follow Jesus, what this passage is saying, what Jesus is teaching us here, if you choose to follow him, you will probably find yourself working regularly to do the very same things. You will probably stay busy giving people rest. And this may require you to be on the move with Jesus on Sundays, maybe working in a hospital, maybe on a fire engine, maybe in the church, or maybe staying home to take care of a sick child or an aging parent, or fighting in a war to free people from real oppression. Now for many others, it will look like going to church, having a great meal, throwing the frisbee, taking a nap, those kinds of recreative things that work for so many people on Sunday. All of these are different facets of this beautiful gemstone of shalom in the kingdom of God. That's what's being put on display when we are enjoying the Sabbath fully. Whatever the Lord leads you, whatever He calls you to do on Sundays, it's going to be a little epiphany of His easy yoke. It's going to be manifesting His recreative work. Now I want to be clear here. Jesus is not saying, don't worry about the law. Feel free to disregard it if it's not working for you. He is not saying that. Earlier, Sermon, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says very clearly that he came to fulfill the law rather than to abolish it. And his kingdom, 
requires, he says, a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. So Jesus is not countering the Pharisees' legalism with total antinomianism. That's not his solution. Not at all. Instead, Jesus is telling us and telling the Pharisees something very important and very provocative about himself. He's saying, I am the long-awaited Messiah, and I set the rules. I am the lawgiver. I can tell you what all of this means. It's very provocative. And, and again, Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. That's what he does. That's what Matthew is showing us in this story, in the next story, in the next story, and all through this gospel. Matthew is showing us that Jesus fulfills the law perfectly every time, in every episode. He is doing exactly what is right. And when he teaches, he is teaching exactly what is right, flawlessly. Jesus never breaks the law. He fulfills it every time, including the Sabbath, perfectly demonstrating every time just what the Sabbath is really for. Every single thing he does on the Sabbath is giving people rest. Who else but God could do this? Who else but the chosen servant, that long-awaited servant Isaiah looked forward to? And the same is true for all the other markers of Jewish identity back in those days. Jesus is just running through them. He is the perfect David. He is the perfect Moses, and so on. And he speaks of another one here in this passage. He's the perfect temple as well. He mentions this in verse 6. The Jerusalem temple was supposed to be one of those thin places connecting heaven and earth and connecting God and humanity. But in Jesus' day, where did it become? A, a den of robbers, right? It wasn't working at all. So Jesus comes to fulfill, not to abolish. He comes to fulfill. And after the Incarnation, after the first Christmas, from that time forward, no one ever needed to go to Jerusalem, to that temple again. No one needed to go there to be healed or forgiven, because as Jesus says, verse 6, something greater than the temple is now here. Are you weary and heavy laden? How about a trip to Jerusalem? That's going to add burdens to you. You don't need to go, it turns out. Jesus is the better temple, the greater temple. And wherever two or three are gathered in his name, you can find that same healing, that same forgiveness, all of the things that you would have found before or hope to have found before in the temple. Better is one day in his course than thousands elsewhere. So, in every way, Jesus shows himself to be this long-awaited Messiah, the one who delivers everyone from going through the motions of faith and experiencing, without experiencing the rest that it's meant to provide. Verse 7, he reminds the Pharisees of Hosea's prophetic prioritization of covenant faithfulness or um, heart faithfulness over sacrifice. 
Again, neither legalism nor antinomianism, but relationship with the Lord is what matters. The Pharisees don't get to decide how to keep the law or how to fulfill it, and we don't either. That's a privilege reserved for the Lord, the Lord Jesus alone, who is, as he says in verse 8, the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the king. He does it perfectly. He interprets the law perfectly. We look to him, and he shows us what it means and how to do it. So, second point here as we move on through the passage. Jesus is also the rest giver. And the question is, why are we still working ourselves to death? Jesus is still the rest giver. Why are we still working ourselves to death? Jesus goes on from, from the grain fields to the synagogue, verse 9, and there he encounters a man with a withered hand. And this poor man's situation provides another opportunity for these matters to be brought front and center, and for Jesus to declare his lordship, not only over the Sabbath, but over all things. If you read the Gospels carefully, you'll see that Jesus has a pretty dim view of the synagogue by this time. The synagogue was supposed to be this place where you would go and encounter the Word of God and it would be this fountain of life. But in fact, uh, by those times, the synagogue had become this place of a heavy burden, of an oppressive yoke being placed upon people over and over again. And in this case, it's a trap for Jesus. The Pharisees are waiting for him so that they might accuse him. They ask him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath in verse 10? And Jesus offers this brilliant response in verses 11 and 12. Take a look at it. Which one of you who has a sheep if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath will not take hold of it and lift it up? But how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And this is a sound legal defense taken straight from the Ten Commandments where Sabbath keeping is prescribed not only for all people, but all creatures as well, even the cattle, so that everyone, all creatures, may rest. That's the objective. The sheep stuck in the pit is not resting, and the sheep's owner, therefore, is also not resting. And so, what is the restful thing to do? Go get the sheep. Take it out of the pit. Give the sheep rest. Um, that's what a good shepherd does. That's what a good parent does when a child is sick. It's what a good child does when a parent is aging and in need of help. Here's what good shepherds and good parents and all faithful Christians do, even and especially on the Sabbath, as part of our Sabbath observance, we work to provide rest, just like Jesus. We do whatever it takes to rescue, comfort, and heal those who are suffering. Again, this isn't some legal loophole. This is not the, the, a thing that you check the box on when you got baptized, but you didn't know all the fine print, right? This is central to the message of the Bible. 
From start to finish, when the Israelites were suffering and slavering under Pharaoh, God would not rest until they were set free. To this day, God continues his work of restoration, providing that rest, bringing healing and rest everywhere until he makes all things new. Like Jesus says at Bethesda, after healing that man who had, who had been um, an invalid for so many years, and he did it on the Sabbath, he says, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. This is what the Sabbath is meant to remind us of. Deliverance from bondage to God for the life of the world. Now, of course, Jesus models not only working to deliver people and heal people and so on, but he also models going off to a quiet place and resting. He's not working constantly all the time. He is modeling this pattern of work and rest, of crowds and then solitude. He's modeling all of these things for us, and that is a, a lesson for another day. But on this, on this topic, this topic of work, look, Jesus, verse 13, he heals the man, and it pushes the Pharisees to the breaking point. Verse 14, they go out and begin to work on the Sabbath. Do you see this? They begin to work on the Sabbath, not to give life, but to take it. Verse 14, they went out and conspired against him, how to destroy him. This is the height of hypocrisy, isn't it? God will not rest until he restores life throughout the world. The Pharisees, on the other hand, however, will not rest until the good shepherd, the rest giver, is dead. Not only is it the height of hypocrisy, but it's the greatest of all ironies. If you think about the story of where this gospel will end. The truth is that no one will rest until the rest giver himself is dead. Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, is also the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. It's through his dying that we are raised to new life. He entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday knowing what he had gone there to do, a certain work that had to be done. He died in order to fulfill all righteousness as God's perfect servant, to accomplish what Israel never could do. He did this to fulfill rather than to abolish the law. On Good Friday, Jesus worked himself to death so that he might give us rest. Only then, after he was nailed to the cross, could he say, it is finished. And then came the Sabbath. And then the resurrection. Jesus gave everything so that we might find rest in him. So let me ask you, why are you still working yourself to death? <laughs> in light of this. And of course, there may be a good reason for Christians to work themselves to death. There are reasons why, over the centuries, Christians have gone to their deaths 
good reasons why. They've gone to their deaths with the Lord as martyrs, as those who have taken the faith to unreached peoples, as those who have gone into some sort of battle or um, crisis in order to bring healing and protection to others. Of course, there are reasons like that. But there are a lot of reasons why Christians should not be working themselves to death, right? And if you still carry the heavy burdens of guilt from your sin, past sins, present sins, let me ask you, why are you working yourself to death? Why are you working so hard to deliver yourself when Jesus has already won the deliverance for you? Give yourself to God incarnate who died in order to deliver you from death, from workaholism, from bondage to himself for the life of the world. And those of you who are working so hard, night and day, anxious not to fall behind on your academics or on your career, so worried about not making it, falling behind, in this race? Why are you still working so hard to gain things that you can't keep? Don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll wear. Seek first the kingdom of God incarnate. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And those of you who literally never stop working on something really important here in Washington, whether economic or political or cultural or theological, why are you still working yourself to death? Give it a rest. You are not Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus claims that title, rightfully so. God incarnate was crucified to deliver us from bondage, even bondage to a good cause. You can rest. You can keep up the good work and do it better because you're resting in Him. Don't you dare keep working 24-7 as if you make all things new without Him. And lastly, we come to this passage at the end, this quotation from Isaiah. Jesus is God's servant who brings rest to the nations. Won't you join Him in His work? Matthew says in verse 17, all this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah about the suffering servant, whom we now know to be Jesus. And this shows that Jesus came not just to free us from slavery, as good as that is, not only to draw us into relationship with himself, but also so that we might join him in taking his love, his good news, and his rest to all the nations. See this passage, starting in verse 18. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I'll put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the nations will hope. Jesus is this suffering servant. He 
did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to fulfill all righteousness. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the greater temple. He's the true Israel through whom all nations will hope. He has called us out of bondage, out of darkness, to himself for the life of the world. He has not called us to idleness. He has not called us to suspended animation, but to an easy yoke. And it's a privilege to be a part of this, isn't it? To come alongside him in his mission to the world. That is going to look like so many different things for all of us. But he is calling all of us to this work. When was the last time you told someone about the reason for the hope that you have within you? When was the last time you invited someone to be under Jesus' easy yoke? He's calling us to be this kingdom of priests, this holy nation, so that we would put his rest on display. That's the question for today. How can we bring gospel rest to the weary? I'll leave you with that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the finished work of Christ, and we thank you for this invitation to enter your rest. And we thank you so much that you call us to come alongside you in this work of sharing your love with the nations. We pray for you to empower us for this work and to give us opportunities to take this love, this goodness, this rest to those who we meet for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.